Welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today, we have a great opportunity in that we have returning visitors, and their world is particularly, I think, affected by the political scene, and people may not be aware, but the chief executive of the United States has changed and has some different views on the subject. I'd like to welcome Timothy Whitehouse and Kyla Bennett of Peer. Welcome to the show. Welcome, Bob. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. As always, any of the opinions that are voiced on this show are not those of Howard County Community College, its faculty, staff, or employees. And furthermore, if you are listening to this and are listening to the legal views, do not take them as legal advice for your individual legal situation. It is important that any of our listeners who have a legal problem consult an attorney, express all of the facts that are necessary to an understanding of the situation, and seek their advice rather than generalizing based on what we say today. So Tim and Kyla are with Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. And I don't mean to wax political, but after four years of the Trump administration, there's just an astonishing level of irony in the idea that there were public employees who are up to good things. To ask you both, generally, are things a different landscape presently? Yes. So right now we're in the Biden administration grace period. So President Biden has come out and made some very good statements on climate, the environment, on whistleblower protection, and on scientific integrity. But we have to go in with eyes wide open, meaning he has very narrow margins in Congress. Many Democrats are very conservative, and our political system is very dysfunctional right now. So things will be much, much better the next two years until the next election, but we're still on a razor's edge and organizations like ours, which are whistleblower organizations and watchdog organizations, have been very active under both Democratic and Republican administrations, but things are much better right now. Kyla? Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I've been with Pierre now for, this is my 21st year. So yeah, I've been under Democratic administrations and Republican administrations. And until the Trump administration, things were actually always worse for me under the Democratic administrations, believe it or not. But the Trump administration was something unlike we've ever seen before. So things are definitely better, but we, as Tim said, have to hold the Biden administration's feet to the fire because there's so much work to do and so much recovery from the past four years that needs to take place. What do you attribute this phenomenon of it being worse under Democrats than under Republicans? In the past, I've found that Democrats often want to find these win-win solutions. You know, there are a lot of talk about the environment and, and things like that, but they really do want to strive to find that middle ground and that win-win, whereas Republicans are more blunt about, yeah, we don't care about the environment, we just want jobs or the economy or whatever. So it's always been harder for me in New England anyway for under the Democrats until the past four years. It does seem ironic that an awful lot of the early environmental movement in the 20th century anyway was Republican oriented and that you got guys like Teddy Roosevelt and and the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning political cartoonist Ding Darling who were ardent Republicans but were people who did so much for the environment. Yes, EPA was founded by Richard Nixon. Most of the major environmental laws were passed with bipartisan Democratic and Republican support. I think what we've seen over the last 20 years, however, is that big interests, moneyed interests, the oil and gas industry, the chemical industry, the big farming 
industries have slowly taken control of government, including the executive branch agencies, and exerted more and more control over the government. And consequently, that bipartisan support for environmental solutions and conservation of lands has eroded largely on the Republican side, but not entirely. So particularly out West, where we work a lot, there used to be a conservation ethic where many Republicans, very, very conservative Republicans, shared the same conservation ethics as the Democrats. And that's changed very rapidly. So we have one side of the political spectrum that is largely just anti-governmental, reactionary in the sense that if, if the government's doing it, it must be bad. Tyler, what are your thoughts? I agree 100%. And there's also, you know, with social media and the internet really exploding, there's so much more opportunity for people to find echo chambers, to find these anti-science echo chambers. And science has really been under attack. Back in the Nixon era, for example, people believed in scientists. You know, if they wore a lab coat and held a clipboard, then what they said was the truth. And that's not happening anymore. People feel like their Google searches are just as valid as somebody with a PhD telling them what they think is, is happening. So I think we really have entered this stage where a lot of people, including politicians, feel like they know just as much if not more than some of the scientists. And that's troubling. Yes, there was a president like that recently. I forget his name. Yes. Yeah, we can refer to him if you want. But yes, what happened the last four years is absolutely frightening and incredible. And that problem and that movement has not gone away and will be threatening us for many years to come. I think what, what we would want to emphasize to people who don't follow day-to-day -day politics is the damage the Trump administration has done has seeped very deep into the federal government. And it will take a long time to repair that. It's not going to be easy. So is that a byproduct of legislation that was passed or executive orders or you know, putting employees in? Or how, how does that work? How, how did that take place in four years? Not so much legislation, because honestly, the Trump administration was not very successful at getting a lot of legislation passed, but rulemaking, executive orders, and also just morale issues. Honestly, EPA lost thousands of people, mostly scientists. A lot of them were nearing retirement, could retire if they wanted to, and just couldn't take it anymore. I frankly don't blame them. There was work being done that violated their very tenets of what they were trying to accomplish in saving the environment, saving wetlands, saving water, air, all of that. And these people were just destroyed emotionally and a lot of them left. So we have a huge brain drain. And then of course, all of the executive orders and rulemaking that he did, like the waters of the US rule, which is just devastating for areas like Maryland, everywhere in the country. So that's gonna take, I think, decades to recover from. So Joe just can't put in a new executive order that brings everything back? the good old days? Not with rulemaking. With the rulemaking, he's going to have to go through it all over again, which can take months, if not years. So executive orders, yeah, he can flip those. But with the rulemaking, it's going to be a lot more complicated. And a lot of those rules are in court right now 
And even if the Biden administration stopped defending them, there are still interveners from the industry side, which is going to cause some trouble. So it's going to take a while. Is there any way to hold the industry responsible from a moral standpoint? It seems like if they're pushing all these things that are demonstrably going to cause long-term harm to the ecosystem and to human beings, there should be a way of fleshing that out for the public to understand it. Yeah, one thing I'll say there is I don't have the statistics in front of me, but you can Google them. The public overwhelmingly supports strong action on climate change, on protecting endangered species, on drinking clean water, on having water that's fishable and swimmable. The problem is our political system has been somewhat captured and doesn't reflect what the people are thinking. And so in terms of holding industry accountable, morally, that's very difficult. But there are legal ways to hold industry accountable. And we're working on one issue called PFAS. And I'll let Kyla explain that a bit, where there are class action lawsuits. But class action lawsuits, which hold the industry accountable for the damage they have caused, are extremely difficult, take years and years to succeed in. And they really, the fact that you need these class action lawsuits means there's been a legal or regulatory failure. Yeah, tell us a little. We, we touched on them the last time you were on and didn't get into too much detail because we covered a lot of turf. What are PFAS and how are they detrimental and how are we doing something about them? PFAS, P-F-A-S, stands for a very large family of chemicals, per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. There are, according to EPA, 9,252 of them that we know of right now. So there's a ton of them. And yet the federal government is starting to regulate two. So we've got 9,250 to go. They are a family of compounds that have a very, very strong carbon-fluorine backbone. And that carbon-fluorine bond is human-made, the strongest bond known in chemistry. So these things, these chemicals are basically indestructible and they have been shown to cause cancer and a lot of other issues, thyroid problems, they're endocrine disruptors, they cause developmental issues, kidney problems, low sperm counts, obesity, just a ton of things. And there's so many of these chemicals and when states start to regulate them or when the federal government starts to say, we're gonna regulate a couple of these, the industry just starts making new ones. They change the formula just a little bit. In fact, Chemors, one of the big manufacturers, has a big sign outside its factory that says, let's change the formula. And that's what they do. They just keep on changing the formula every time somebody regulates one and they make new ones. And they are so persistent in the environment. They bioaccumulate in fish, wildlife, and humans. At one point, 99% of Americans had PFAS in their blood which is just horrifying because it's so very dangerous. And we, we still don't know how to destroy it. And these PFAS are used because they're water resistant, oil resistant, stain resistant, and heat resistant. So they're in a ton of consumer products, not just your nonstick frying pans, but your makeup, your dental floss. They're in carpets, upholstery, just every, ski wax. They're in pesticides, artificial turf. They're everywhere. And so they're getting into our water, getting into our food system, and we are just at a huge loss right now. EPA has a lot of work to do to get a handle on the situation. Is there an acknowledgement in the industry that this chemical combination is a problem? Well, yeah. The industry 
has admitted that two of them, PFOA and PFOS, might be a problem, but they claim that the others, their substitutions that they've been developing are safe, and they're not. We know very little from a toxicological standpoint about all of these chemicals. It's very, very difficult. We don't even know the chemical formulas of most of them. So it's hard to do toxicological studies on all of these compounds, but the ones that we do know, we're finding that they have that all of these other ones, we call them regrettable substitutions, they're just as bad as the PFOA and PFOS. Without getting too inside baseball, you said that this chemical bonding is incredibly strong and it's used in all these products. How does it get out of the products and into us? So a lot of different ways. They're actually made to shed. So when you cook an egg, if you fry an egg in your nonstick pan, there's going to be a really thin layer of PFAS compounds on the bottom of that egg when you slide it off onto the plate. They're meant to migrate and they migrate quite easily. So why? Yeah, it's just that, that the way seems they like work. a ridiculous idea. Yeah. And when they're in your clothes and you wash them in the washing machine or when you wash your pan, some of the PFAS comes off and goes down the sink and into your septic system and then into the wastewater treatment plants. And they are not taken out by the treatment at wastewater treatment plants. So what happens is actually we found, scientists have found that there are actually more PFAS coming out of the effluent of a wastewater treatment plant than in the influence. So they're actually being created in the treatment process. Then they get discharged into a river or they get taken out in biosolids and sludge. And those are sold to farmers and homeowners to put on their gardens. And then the cycle starts all over again. So there's just no, in fact, EPA right now has kind of a, a reward out for anybody who can figure out how to dispose of or destroy these chemicals because they just have no idea. There's a $50,000 reward for figuring it out. And right now- It seems meager to me. It is meager. And <laughs> it seems like all we can do right now is store them someplace until we figure out how to dispose of them because there are no good disposal or destruction options. Is there any kind of filtration system? Yes. So there are filtration systems that will take out. In fact, everybody should have one. You should have one where you live in your kitchen. I have one. But then the problem is that they're trapped in the filter. What do you do with the filter? So I've got a garage filled with these used filters that have a ton of PFAS and they have to go to hazardous waste day. So you just, you know, even if you take them out of your water, you still have them in the filter. So there's just no getting away from it. So is there an alternative the industry could be using that's safer? Well, yes. Europe is looking at, so in the U.S., we let the industry run the show, and then we try and play catch up. And then the industry says you don't have the data to prove what you want to prove, even though these are billion-dollar companies that could easily resolve these problems. So I think the United States needs to look to Europe, where they are restricting PFAS to essential uses only, and they're trying to get them out of the commercial markets except where it's absolutely necessary. Think about it. Human beings survived for a long time without PFAS. We can continue to wear cotton clothing, nylon clothing without PFAS. Firefighting gear now is laden with PFAS. It didn't have PFAS till 2007 or so when the industry mandated that it contain PFAS. So we've survived a long time without PFAS, and we can narrow it down and use it only for essential purposes. So we were earlier touching on mechanisms for battling this. 
we were talking about class action lawsuits. And I presume that they are ones that are done in conjunction with private lawyers and also state attorney generals and that sort of thing. Is that accurate? Yeah, so Rob Bellot, who um, of Dark Waters fame, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's a great, great movie. He has a class action lawsuit right now. I know that my town here in Massachusetts, we're involved in a class action lawsuit because our water is contaminated. So there are some private lawyers who are signing towns up all over the country to go after the manufacturers of this. So as far as states taking action, I haven't really seen, I know states are trying to regulate PFAS way more than the federal government has. So for example, in my state, the state of Massachusetts, we regulate, we have a drinking water standard and a groundwater standard of 20 parts per trillion for six PFAS. It's one of the more strict ones in the country, but they haven't yet gone after the manufacturers. I'm hoping they do. They should. What's going on in Maryland, if you know? Yes, yeah, so Maryland's beginning to take small steps. It's not in the forefront of this, but the state is beginning to test throughout the state and will release those test results, I believe, in the coming year. We've tested for PFAS in Maryland and found very high levels down near St. Mary's in both in crabs, oysters, and in the water down there. It's near a military base. Yeah, and so there are high levels, we believe, throughout the state and the state's in the very early stages of kind of assessing the problem. There is a bill in the Maryland General Assembly, I don't think it'll pass this year, but it's a start, which would prohibit the use, manufacturing and distribution of certain firefighting foams, which have high levels of PFAS, and prohibit the addition of PFAS, certain PFAS into the sale of rugs, carpets, food packaging, and other products that contain these chemicals. So there are these beginning steps, but in Maryland, there's no effort at this point that I'm aware of to regulate how much can actually be in your drinking water, in the surface water, or in wildlife. I mean, is the idea that you bring a lawsuit and that the populace has been damaged in various biological ways and you prove that and you can get an astronomical verdict against the manufacturer, kind of like a civil action or like what's her name out in California who was running around the Julia Roberts, you know, thing? Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. And in fact, there, Rob Ballot did take an action in West Virginia, the subject of that Dark Waters movie, where right. the manufacturers had to pay for testing and all the health you know, studies that were done, which led to a lot of information for us. But yes, I mean, eventually, these companies should be paying for cleanup. Department of Defense is ending up paying for a lot of cleanup right now because so many of the Air Force bases and Army facilities are laden with PFAS and contaminating neighboring communities, downstream communities. One of the ironic things about this, though, and one of the problematic pieces of law here is that if the Biden administration does decide to start looking into regulating certain PFAS chemicals under TSCA, the Toxic Substances Control Act, once they start that risk evaluation, what it does is it means that whatever actions states have taken elsewhere have to stop. They can't regulate them while this, the EPA is looking into it. We'd have to get a waiver from EPA to allow the states to continue to regulate these substances and the evaluation process can take years. So it's really kind of a catch 22. The states are trying to fill the void and regulate these chemicals. We've got class action suits going on to try to force these companies to pay for the contamination. 
because the, the filtration systems for a town can cost anywhere from $10 million to $20 million. And municipalities can't afford that. Sure. Um, so somebody has to pay for it. And somebody has to figure out what to do. But nobody has the money except for the companies. So it's our only option, really. So on a more optimistic note, I would presume there are things that you both think will be more feasible to accomplish across the next two years than there were across the last four years. Could you talk a little bit about that? So one thing that I'm very optimistic about is the initial steps by the Biden administration to put uh, scientists and people that are largely free of conflicts of interest into the environmental agencies is moving forward. So the Biden administration appears in the Department of Interior and EPA to be putting in people that do not have these huge conflicts of interest and are not captured by the industry. So that's a really positive sign. And it will allow for greater progress on issues such as climate change, which will be very difficult in the future, and chemicals management, which will also be very difficult because the industry is so powerful. You don't think that Wheeler and Pruitt and Zinke and those guys have a future in the Biden administration? I do not, but they have a future on the talk show circuit, and they have a very profitable, lucrative consulting future. I have a feeling they were all in Orlando over the weekend. I know some of them were. Including my beloved Dr. Scott Atlas. Okay. I mean, yep. it's funny. I think that that, in many respects, is one of the greatest framing things going forward, that you had a chief executive running policy through Scott Atlas, you know, in contrast to Dr. Fauci. And the public seems to understand the difference between Dr. Fauci and what the Trump administration was selling with respect to COVID. But I do feel like that gives a, an opportunity to kind of reframe things going forward. The scientist with knowledge, good. Policymaker without knowledge, bad. Right. Absolutely. I mean, the United States, compared to many other countries, has prided itself for a long time and having some of the best scientists and science and universities in the world. But at the same time, it's had this very strong anti-intellectual bent, you know, where it's been this conflict in American history and culture that we saw where the anti-science view of governance, you know, just completely took over the last four years. It's bizarre because you feel like one feels as though if Trump had embraced science a little more, he'd be president right now. You know, that if he let Fauci run things, if he let scientists who think PFAS are bad, and I understand the industry was of great economic assistance to him, but it just does seem a little strange. Well, on the one hand, I'll let Kyla weigh in, and I'm going to say something that's very personal to me. I think sure. the Trump administration, the way I view it, it was the big grift. I mean, these people that were running the government had come up through their lives doing a grift, you know, their whole business model was based upon getting money in ways that were questionable and misleading people and fighting anyone that demanded fair pay justice within their own organizations. They brought that system of government to the United States. And so I don't ever feel that they would have embraced science because it wasn't in their sort of DNA. Wasn't much money in it for them either. Right. But I agree, they, they could have easily embraced science and done much better in the polls. The thing that puzzles me about it is, what are these people thinking? You know, Andrew Wheeler, for example, if he can afford his underground bunker 
to go down there for three years and escape, you know, whatever's coming, the environmental apocalypse, he's going to have to come out one of these days. What do they think? You cannot buy your way out of climate change. You might be able to buy clean water for a while. You may be able to buy air conditioning or move to a location that's not going to be as badly affected, you know, move out of the flood zone. But eventually, you're going to be subjected to the same thing that the rest of us are, which is dirty water, dirty air, rising seas, unlivable temperatures. I don't know what they're thinking, why they can't, you know, think about their children, their grandchildren, the future of the planet. I don't get it. It is a great enigma in my mind. Does anybody know what happened to to Pruitt's famous $50,000 phone booth? Great question. I'll have to Google that and find it on eBay or maybe on one of those websites that sells that stuff. Or maybe I'd like to think we could raise money and, and, and get hold of it and have it as something down at Pier or some comparable organization. Yes, we could we could allow people to pay money to sit in it. As a be many people amused by that idea. So as a final question, and I just sort of turn on this, I presume that you have to be funded by donations and that sort of thing. Is that how it works? Yeah, we're funded three ways. One is by foundations, largely foundations that understand the importance of whistleblowers and watchdogs. Uh, Secondly, we're funded by other types of foundations that support environmental efforts. I should say four ways, individual donations. And if we win lawsuits and we're entitled to attorney's fees, we collect on those. Do you find that you do better when the Republicans are in power and the foundations go, oh my gosh, Or is it the Democrats, or does it really not seem to matter either way? Well, I do say every environmental organization probably experienced a Trump bump where, you know, people were so outraged by what was happening, people that cared about the environment, that they wanted to support organizations they thought were fighting for their principles. So in that sense, you know, the the Trump era did allow for environmental groups to receive greater funding from both foundations and individuals that were concerned about the direction of the country. Are you concerned that now that Biden's in office, that will recede a little bit? It will recede a little bit. I'm not concerned. You know, we have to stay relevant as an organization. There are always public employees in both Democratic and Republican administrations, and we work at the state level, you know, that need assistance, that are whistleblowers. And also in the Biden administration, they'll be putting forth a lot of great plans on the climate. But they're also, because they're putting a lot of money in this area, there's a real need to watchdog where that money's being spent and whether it's being spent effectively. And that is where groups like us come in and we go in eyes wide open. We understand what huge influxes of money into programs can do to the best intentions. And we intend to watch carefully what's happening and make sure those programs work and people are getting the value from their money that is being spent on it. As a final matter, we have intermittently lawyer political guests. We've had the Attorney General of Maryland, Brian Frosch, on. We're going to have the Comptroller, Peter Franchot, on on Wednesday. And I just wondered if either of you had questions for them that you would like me to ask to kind of herd them in the right direction. Well, I'll let Kyla go on PFAS, and then I do have a climate energy question. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, absolutely. You should ask them about what they're planning to do with P- on PFAS, because it's a huge issue in Maryland, huge and you know they should be aware of what's going on and the fact that even if the federal government does take action, it's going to be slow and they can do something a lot quicker and they should be. 
My question on climate change would be Maryland has tremendously increased its goals for renewable energy in the state. There's been a lot of evidence emerging that there are now a lot of energy scams occurring in Maryland by people selling products that are not properly characterized and they're charging low-income people astronomical rates. It's called the Texas model. The Texas model is coming to Maryland. It's been written about by the Able Foundation, the Baltimore Sun, and by many advocacy groups. What are they going to do to ensure that Maryland residents, particularly low-income residents that buy energy, get what they're paying for and are charged a fair price? I'm afraid on that note, we've done our time, and I just want to thank you both for coming on today. And I will get those questions. Whether or not they will answer them satisfactorily is something that remains to be seen. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Bob. It was a great show. I really enjoyed being here. This has been Everyday Law with your host, Bob Clark. Farewell, stay safe, and stay healthy. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio. 